Blog Talk Radio. J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. As you know, on this show, every week on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I speak about and interview people who I feel are really making a difference in the world. Sometimes these people are economists, sometimes they're politicians, sometimes they're teachers, writers, actors, musicians spiritual teachers, neuroscientists. It doesn't matter so much what they're doing, but in a sense how they show up and what they can teach us and lead us through and to to become better human beings so we can serve our higher life purpose and make a difference and actually create the theme of this show, A Better World. Well, in this light, we have in, we have invited Neil Donald Walsh, who is the author of some 27 books on a great phrase that I love so much, Practical Spirituality. And he's best known for his original series called Conversations with God, which has have sold millions of copies worldwide, has been translated into some 35 languages. And Seven of the books that he has written have been on the New York Times bestseller list. So it's really, truly a pleasure and an honor to have Neil joining us today because of many of the people I know, he is really one of the seminal thinkers, of philosophers, who really steps back and is always seeking to grapple with and come to a greater understanding of the larger picture. And, of course, he fleshes that out, his understanding, which is always evolving as well in his books. Today, the primary subject of the show is going to be his latest book called The Only Thing That Matters, which you can tell by the name itself is really getting to the heart of the matter, which is just what Neil is well known for. So it's a pleasure to have him on to talk about things that are really down to earth and yet with a heavenly intent, if you will, of helping us understand and comprehend and be in touch with a higher calling, a larger picture. Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mitchell. It's lovely to be here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. It's good to have you. Um, Just uh, going back a little bit in time, 
we did have you on a Better World Television back before I had actually started the radio show. God, it must have been in the year 2000 at a natural law party event where you and I were both respectively following our heart's calling to seek to spiritualize and evolve uh, a, a body politic here in this country. And it was a pleasure to have you on then, and it's a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you. That's a generous thing to say. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Neil, let's let's dive right in. You've developed a really interesting um, organization of material in this book. I've been really enjoying it and coming, combing over it, you know, sentence by sentence, which is the way I like to do it, so I can really savor the different uh, the different concepts and tenets that you have underneath it. What you make a statement, 98% of the world's people are spending 98% of their time on things that don't matter. So it sort of begs the question, does it matter to who and what are you referring to? Well, uh, to answer your first question, does it matter to your soul? Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but that begs a, an, another question behind it. I think, um, Mitchell, that human beings uh, need now on this planet to make a crucial decision, and that is they have to really decide who they actually are, who they truly mm. are. And by that I mean yeah. we have to identify ourselves as either a simple biological creature, no different from a whale or a dolphin or a bird, or even for that matter a tree, yeah. uh, just just a, a, a creature emerging from a biological chemical system. A phenomenon. Perhaps more sophisticated, perhaps more complex than other biological systems, but a biological creature nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And that's who we are. And when we do the thing that we call die, like trees die or birds or whales die, yeah. then we just simply cease to exist. Or... We have to imagine ourselves to be something other than that, perhaps even, dare I use the phrase, something greater than that. We mm -hmm. have to decide that we are perhaps uh, creatures with a, a soul. That is, that we may be made of spirit as well as body and mind, mm -hmm. and that if that is true, if we are in fact spiritual creatures simply inhabiting a body and a mind, then the entire paradigm of our experience begins to shift. We have to answer questions we wouldn't have otherwise had to answer. That is... Why did our spirit choose to inhabit a body and travel with a mind? What is the purpose of this journey? What happens when this journey is over? What goes on after that? Mm -hmm. And uh, what are the ultimate outcomes? So uh, that opens up a whole new line of questioning. When I say that 98% of the people are spending 98% of their time on things that don't matter, I'm suggesting that most people are functioning as if they were simply a body and a mind, yeah. paying attention to those things we have to pay attention to in order to survive, but not paying a great deal of attention to anything else or to much else. And the attention that we are paying to our body and mind is focused in such a way that most of it doesn't matter. Now, I think, you know, as as we get older, we begin to see that. I'm approaching my 70th birthday, mm -hmm. and as I look back over my life, I see that a great deal of it. I'm not willing to put a percentage on it. I'm not really sure I've looked at it that closely, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. certainly it's clear to me that a great deal of what I worried about, what I fretted about, what I was concerned about, what I paid attention to, what I exercised uh, choices about, and and what I spent my energy on, 
simply now, as I'm sitting here at the age of nearly 70, mm-hmm. just doesn't matter. And furthermore, it probably didn't matter then, although I thought that it did. I so as I have approached... You're suggesting a uh, kind of a purview of life, a perspective that would allow us to have a sense of intent and purposefulness. This is what I hear from you. In our daily interactions, and also calling from some of what I read in your book, that it's not so much of what it is we're doing, i.e. occupying our daily lives, but the actions themselves, we have to do things that that support our survival, needless to say. But it's rather who we are in the actions. It's sort of what is behind the actions on another level, you could say, that really adds up to living a life that matters. Is that approaching what you're talking about? Yes, I think we need to decide, as I mentioned a moment ago, number one, who we are. What is our actual yes. and true and full identity? And then emerging from that decision, emerging from that choice that we make about our identity, will um, will come other uh, choices and decisions, smaller choices and decisions, that answer the question, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Yeah. Why, why, am I, why, why am I engaged in this or that? A particular activity so uh, and 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 it will also it, depending on the choice we make with regard to our true identity we will find ourselves doing just as you pointed out many of the same things we did before we'll be still getting up and going to work if, if that's how our life is arranged yeah we'll still have our loved one our beloved wife or spouse perhaps if we have one yeah. we'll have the same children we will do the same kinds of things we did before but we will find ourselves doing many of those things if not most of those things for entirely different reasons. Let me give you one example. Sure, it's a simple example. I can walk into my kitchen and find the sink full of dishes. And they're on the countertop and they're in the sink. It's not a big mess. I mean, it's about 10, 12, maybe 15 minutes work at the most. Mm-hmm. A minor annoyance. Oh, man, you know, the place is a little bit messy. I guess i got to clean up these dishes, rinse them off, and put them in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way... As an aside, I would suggest, when I was young, we didn't have dishwashers. (laughs) We we couldn't afford one in our house, and most people didn't have one. So I was about standing there for a half hour or more and actually washing the dishes. If you can imagine this, I mean, this is, I know it sounds primitive, but glass by glass, (laughs) cup by cup. Listen, I live in New York. I still do it. Okay, Neil? (laughs) There you are. So, so I guess you really are primitive, Mitchell. I I am primitive, (laughs) admittedly. So, so I come to so in any event, I come to the sink and I see the dishes there, and I realize, okay, I guess I got to clean these up. No, but why? Yes. Why? Because because somebody's coming over in a half hour, and I don't want to look like a mess. Because nobody's coming over, but I'm living with myself, but I I don't like to live this way for no apparent reason. It, it just doesn't please me. Mm-hmm. Or what? In fact, what is the reason that I'm doing the thing called clean up the dishes? So I'm thinking, well, you know, normally, not always, but in more often than not. My sweetheart does this. I do, there are other things. We have a, a, a chore sharing list around the house, but dishes is not on my list. It's on her list, but I guess she just didn't get to it this morning. Now she's off doing whatever else she's doing during the day, and wouldn't wouldn't she feel great? Wouldn't she feel terrific yeah. if I actually did this, 
cleaned off the countertop, wiped it all down so that when she walked in, it looked like showcase ready. Yes. Well, in fact, I do it, and I do it for that reason. Mm-hmm. By golly, she does come home in an hour and a half, and she says, oh, honey, you cleaned up the kitchen. How wonderful. <laughs> and she gives me a big hug and a big yeah. smooch, and it's really clear that something else has happened. A transaction has occurred that's far larger yeah. than the simple act of cleaning the dishes out of the sink. Now, when we apply that kind of example to everything that we do, asking ourselves a simple question, what does this have to do? What does what I'm doing right now have to do with the agenda of my soul? Mm -hmm. But, of course, you couldn't ask that question, Mitchell, if we haven't decided what the agenda of the soul is. And that's where most people find themselves. If you walk down the street with a clipboard over there in New York City and approach 100 people and ask the first 100 people that you approach, what is the agenda of your soul? I'm going to suggest to you that 75 of them won't even have an answer. They'll say, you got me. I'm not even sure I have a soul. Exactly. They might even query that one. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So so my observation and my experience has been that most people are not familiar with, are not clear about the agenda of their soul. Therefore, what they're doing with the days and times of their life could have very little to do with that agenda, unless it was sheer coincidence, totally by accident, yeah. but not on purpose. Yet, the purpose of our life is to live an intentioned existence where we do things with uh, intentions that serve the agenda of the soul. Basically, in a nutshell, that's what the book is about, and then the book talks about the agenda of the soul, which, by the way, from person to person, is exactly identical. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a provocative statement, and I want to get to an answer to that in a moment after I just share with you a little bit of some of the thoughts, Neil, that came to me as you were speaking eloquently here about about the central premise of your book and your work. And one is that people do, as you were saying, come into this life and they lead it rather, with all due respect, mechanically, if not robotically. And they do the things they need to do to survive, but with very little thought for the morrow, in the true sense of the term. What is this whole game about? And it's funny because I happen while I have my mechanicality, God knows, and my primitiveness, as you properly pointed out, I was besieged with the questions that you're asking in your book as a 13-year-old, 14, 15, and I'll tell you the truth, I've never changed. And I was a bit of a plague to my own family and to my teachers because I couldn't stop referencing this notion of what is the purpose of our lives, what is life itself, and um, what is reality? You know, just small little questions that Woody Allen and I used to ponder, you know, as, as teenagers. But I never grew out of it. So that is one of the reasons, by the way. By the way, neither is he. <laughs> That's right, exactly. I saved the money on psychoanalysis. I became a therapist myself. So, uh, but he, how he, he, you saved, are. he saved the money. He <laughs> saved the money on psychoanalysis by making movies. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so um, your 
work, actually, um, very much, I would say, Conversations with God resonated with me very deeply, including the humor of it, by the way. I was very moved by just how humorous it was and how you handled that in the book. Was That's a whole other story, which I thought was fabulous. Um, but I'm coming around to this notion that very much appealed to me as a youngster uh, that I found in Buddhism, which is this idea of a human birth, because you were distinguishing it from, let's say, other kinds of biological births, let's say, among uh, other mammals, for instance, whales, what have you. What distinguishes a human birth? And from the point of view of Buddhist psychology, I'll call it, uh, there's this idea of the particular preciousness of a human birth for the possibility of having leisure, leisure time, that is, free from the demands of survival because of our, let's say, advanced brain, what have you, and ability to tool make, that we could contemplate our nature, i.e. our soul, and come to a point of higher resonance with, you know, dare I say, the entirety of the universe. So I just wanted to kind of throw that into the middle here for us as we proceed along the way and hear what you have to say about it. Well, uh, do you have a question around what you just said? No, no, no. I just would like to hear. I, I'm, I'm throwing in this notion that there is something particular about a human birth and the way it's cognized by, you know, let's just call it a, a wisdom tradition that I think that distinguishes yeah, I, us from the rest of the um from the living biology well, well there is and what and what what distinguishes us from the rest of the biology of the universe and uh, on this planet in particular yeah uh is our level of consciousness obviously we are exactly. self-conscious a, a dog is not self-conscious he can look at himself in the mirror and bark at himself and think he's barking at another dog yeah so 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 dogs are not self-conscious and so re- really brain science has a, a really uh Evolved remarkably in the past 50 years, and we've yeah. come to understand that we that we have a, at least a three-level brain. Uh, we have a reptilian brain, a mammalian brain, and a human brain. Mm-hmm. A reptilian brain is the brain that we find in turtles and snakes and so forth. Turtles and snakes can't become angry, by the way. You can't make a snake. I know you think you can, but you really can't. Yeah. A snake doesn't go, I'm really mad now, <laughs> and nor does a turtle, nor do any other right. reptiles. They simply respond in, uh, instinctively. Yeah. Uh, you, by the way, you can anger a mammal, however. You yeah. can make a, a, a lion quite angry, and don't test this theory, because I can promise you that you can. Right. However, a mammal, as opposed to a person, a, a, a being, a, a living creature with a human brain, a, a mammal cannot reflect upon itself. It can become angry, and it can let out a big roar to let you know that it's angry, but it does not have self-reflective qualities. A lion does not say, gee, do you think that was a little bit too much there? I mean, right. I don't know. I probably shouldn't have roared quite that <laughs> Let's discuss this. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the other lions will think. You know, I, I, I think I may have overdone that. So, so uh, lions don't, and mammals do not self-reflect but uh, as far as we know, at least not lower-level mammals. But human, those uh, aspects of life, those expressions of, of life on the earth that have a human brain, we have evolved to the point where we can reflect upon ourselves. Early man saw his reflection in the pool and uh, touched his face and realized that he was touching himself, 
and suddenly self-consciousness or self-awareness was born. And so, obviously, exactly. what, what separates us and makes us different from every other life form on this planet, as far as we know, is self-consciousness. Now, there are those who say, this is an interesting conversation, that dolphins and whales and certain other higher-level mammals have equal levels of self-consciousness, or at least a higher level of self-consciousness than others. But the answer to your question is, mm -hmm. it's about self-consciousness and self-awareness. Yes. But when we become self-aware, that's when we begin to ask the Aristotelian questions, the questions posed by Socrates and all the great philosophers mm -hmm. throughout the ages, for that matter. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of all of this? What happens, when all of, if anything, when all of this is over? And how do the answers to those questions impact upon and directly affect my day-to-day -day experience? That's what this book is all about. Yes, exactly. Well, you said something rather provocative, Neil, which is that the agenda of the soul for us all is identical. Could you expound upon that? I have been made to understand that all life forms are externalizations, if you please. Mm -hmm. uh, they are all emergent from and externalizations of divinity. Yes. That is, life is God made manifest in physicality mm -hmm. or divinity, if you will. So, uh, and and the purpose of life is to allow, I'll put this in human terms, allow divinity to experience itself in its varied and many, I want to say, countless manifest forms. Mm -hmm. That is, to talk in street language, God chooses to know itself. Yeah. And God chooses to know itself in its own experience. In order for God to experience itself as the totality that it is, it has created a contextual field. And the process of physicalization within which it can be expressed and experienced and it can be experienced in varying levels of varying degrees depending upon the level of consciousness with which a particular life form or life expression is imbued it is a, a thought that I hold that there are life forms in the universe far more advanced and um, and more highly conscious, if I could use that term, yes. than human life here on this planet. Or certainly more so intelligent, I, I would wager. Yeah. I'm sorry? I said, or I would wager far more intelligent. Yes. It, it's arguable that there is no intelligent life on this planet, but that's an old joke from Newton <laughs> Burrow. <laughs> yes. But, but, Thank but, you, Lily yeah. Tomlin. <laughs> right. Yeah. But... but uh, yeah. uh, we're, we're talking in terms of uh, that level of uh, self-consciousness that allows us to make choices and decisions that are far more uh, reaching, or I should say more far-reaching, than uh, what will I have for breakfast, mm -hmm. or what job do I want to take, or who shall I marry, or yeah. should I live in this house or in that place, yeah, or what, for that matter, what clothes shall I put on today to go to work? I mean, it, it, see, those, those decisions turn out to be really minuscule, but here's what's interesting. What's interesting about life, as I observe people living it, and observe myself living it for the largest number of years in my life, mm -hmm. is that not only are we spending 98% of our time on things that don't matter, the stuff that we are going after is the wrong stuff. Yeah. That is, I think that people have to ask a, a central question after they answer the first central question, the first central question I talked about at the outset of our conversation. Who am I? Mm -hmm. Am I a chemical being, a biological entity, or am I a spirit with a body? Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, I think, this question. It's a fair question to have to ask. How is it possible for 7 billion people on the earth, 
to all claim they want the same thing and be unable to get it. Mm. How is it possible for a species of sentient beings who declare themselves to be at least modestly evolved to have been seeking and hankering and yearning for the same thing, not for a couple of dozen years or even a couple of hundred years or even a couple of thousand years, but for many, many thousands of years. All of us seeking the same basic outcomes, Mm -hmm. health, safety, security, prosperity, opportunity, creativity, a sense of self, joy, peace, love. Love. We all want, every every human being on the earth wants the same thing at the bottom line. Yes. And now, how is it possible Acceptance, for seven billion people yeah. to all want the same thing and have it, have it be the case that we've been unable to produce it after trying for thousands of years? Is it because we're just dulled, just mm. a stupid race? Mm. No, that that wouldn't be the reason. No, no um, uh, species of sentient beings that sent a man to the moon that can uh, dissect the human genome that can clone life as we've now cloned sheep and yeah. all the rest. We're just a few years away from cloning human beings, by Truly. the way. Truly. No, no human beings, uh, or I should say, no sentient beings who can uh, demonstrate that level of genius should be called incapable of producing the outcome. Well, then why can't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why then? Why can't we produce this rather simple outcome? of peace, prosperity, security, stop the killing, end the war, find a way to live together you know, with reasonable outcomes for all people. What, what's so hard about that? I can tell you what the answer is. The answer is, first of all, we're going after the wrong stuff. Uh-huh. We, are, we are, in fact, going after peace. We are, in fact, going after security. Mm-hmm. We are, in fact, going after prosperity, opportunity, creativity, full self-expression, love, joy, happiness, and all the rest. That's yeah. what we're trying to... Go- and we're going after the wrong stuff. Well, are you if, suggesting fact, that that is already implicit in the setup and there's no need to grab for it because it's already part of our nature? I'm suggesting that if we, are, if we focus our attention on completing the agenda of the soul, yes. in the moments when we complete that agenda, all these other things come to us automatically. I see. Without okay. effort. Got it. They are or as added someone far more eloquent us. than I will ever be, as someone far more eloquent than I will ever be said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all else, all these things will be added unto you. Mm-hmm. So what I have learned in my life uh, from my dialogue and my conversations with God, he said, if I focus my attention, if I pay uh, attention to my soul's agenda, which is to express and to experience at the highest level it is possible to do so in any in any moment of my life, divinity itself. If I focus on what would divinity do now, if I were an aspect of divinity, and there are those who might argue that I'm not, but if I were, just mm-hmm. argumentatively, yes. if I were an aspect and a manifestation of divinity, what would that manifestation do now? If I pay attention to the answer to that question in every moment of my life, all the rest of the stuff that I thought I was supposed to be striving for, get the guy, get the girl, get the car, get the job, get the house, get the promotion, get the bigger house, get the bigger car, get the kids, get the grandkids, get yeah. the office in the corner, get the gray hair, get the sickness, and get the hell out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how people have been living their lives. Truly. Truly. And then on their deathbed, they wonder, is that they sing, you know, Peggy Lee's 
woeful song from 25 years ago. Is that all there is? <laughs> if, yes. if, that, if that's all there is, somebody send in the clowns. That's right. That's because right. I've got to be in a circus here. Or they sing Frank Sinatra's song, That's Life, you know? And there's something... Well, if we're going to sing a Frank Sinatra song, I'm going to sing my favorite Frank Sinatra song. Which I is? did it my way. Yeah, right, exactly. That's your style. <laughs> exactly. But the point is that we are living as though we are biological beings, if I would put it, I would put it that way, and that we are not spiritual beings. And you actually make a, an important point in your book that I think it's good to bring forward here for those people who are not given to the words of the theological uh, such or metaphysical for that matter such as God and you very rightfully um, offer the word instead of of life or instead of sacred of life serving and I consider these very um, synonymous and I still have reverence for each of those words as well as for what's behind them. So I think that's a very nice distinction, by the way. I just wanted to bring attention to in your book. So it becomes... Thank you. Yeah, it really becomes available for all beings and despite or having nothing to do with their, let's say, religious or non-spiritual proclivities, you know. It's fine. But it coming back, it's as though there's something of our higher nature. Since you outlined that fact that we have three brains, um, so to speak, uh, I would say that we are living way too much and dwelling in our reptilian brain and between that and the mammalian, and we're not developing the cerebral cortex, which I personally think is giving us a direct neurocircuitry inroad to the level of the soul that now that's just my belief system by the way and i don't ever expect anyone to agree with it but i think there's a through line all the way through from the reptilian actually but i think that when there's a prominence of cerebral cortex activity since you referenced neuroscience that they've noticed neil that with prefrontal activity there is a sense of oneness which you by the way also speak of beautifully in the book of oneness of unity of brotherhood and sisterhood as well as compassion that is not actually wholly available when we're just dwelling in the other brains what are your thoughts about that not available at all generally speaking right the the, the uh, most uh, important or crucial misunderstanding yes uh, that human beings enter into is the idea of separation that somehow we are separate from life somehow we are separate from each other and somehow we are separate from that thing that some people call God Yahweh Brahman Jehovah whatever it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It serves us to use and Allah yeah. or whatever the name of your choice is yes we have it that we are separate from all of that we've been taught that First, we've been taught we're separate from God by most of the world's religions. Yeah. Then we're taught that we're separate from each other by most of the world's cultures. See, here's the problem. At the beginning, we had a what I would call a separation theology. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a theology that says God is over here and you're over there right. and never the twain shall meet, at least not until perhaps Judgment Day, in which <laughs> yeah. case it will be too late to do anything about anything. Yes. So we have a separation theology that suggests that there is a clear delineation and a clear line of separation between human beings and the thing that we call divine or God. 
Now, that's okay if it's as far as it went, but in fact, a separation theology produces automatically a separation cosmology, that is, a way of holding life itself, cosmologically, as a bunch of separate entities interacting with each other, sometimes with mutual interests, but nevertheless, separate entities. A separation cosmology produces a separation psychology, sure. that is, a psychological way of holding life that says that I'm here, you're there, when our interests meet, we'll do the best we can. When they don't meet, I may have to kill you if you don't mind. A separation psychology produces a separation sociology, that is, a society, a global society, that imagines itself to be separate from itself, much less from its creator, much less from the earth, the environment, or the universe at large. And a separation sociology ultimately produces, inevitably produces, a separation pathology. That is, pathological behaviors of self-destruction. So we move from theology to cosmology to psychology to sociology and, and to pathology. In a very, and by the way, that movement happens very quickly. It doesn't take 10,000 years. Yeah. It sometimes takes 10 minutes. Yeah. And you want to see, see the movement from theology to pathology in 10 minutes, just go to the, um, go to the gravestone, go to the funeral uh, you know, uh, of a gay soldier and watch the members of that wonderful Christian church in Missouri walking around with signs back and forth in front of the family that's trying to lay their loved one to rest, oh, God, who gave yeah. up his life for his country, and, and, and look at the signs that say God hates fags yeah. and uh, God has sent him to hell. Yeah. That's when theology meets pathology and yeah. creates pathological behaviors of self-destruction. It happens in a moment. Yeah, exactly. And the only moment. cure for it that I can see is to change the original story. And that is something that humanity has been very reluctant to do. Mm-hmm. We will change everything else, but we will not change our beliefs. And there's a reason that we don't. You know, Because people of strong religious beliefs refuse to do what people in science do all the time, what people in medicine do all the time, mm-hmm. what people in technology do all the time. In fact, in every other human discipline, without exception, yes. in every other human discipline, we do this particular thing, but we do not do it in religion. I know where you're going. In science, yeah. in medicine, in technology, we are not afraid to question the prior assumption. Exactly. As a matter of fact... The reason we've made such extraordinary advances in medicine and in science and in technology is precisely because we question the prior assumption. No sooner do we chance upon a discovery that we say, well, you know, what if we ask the famous what if? What if that's not all there is to know on this subject? But in the area of religion, not only do we fail to question the prior assumption, we call it criminal to do so. There are, in fact, countries on this planet, nations on the earth, where it is a criminal offense to question the theology. Therefore, you are not allowed to question the prior assumption. The result of that is we're living in the 21st century with first century theological understandings. If we did that in medicine, we'd be going in to do brain surgery with a very sharp stick. Exactly. And rocks, and we'd be still using leeches. We are speaking with... Neil Donald Walsh, the author of many books, 27 actually, 
altogether. Uh, originally, the series known as Conversations with God, we are spending the hour with him discussing his latest book called The Only Thing That Matters. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're not part of our newsletter and part of our A Better World community, make sure to get on that newsletter at abetterworld.tv and tell your friends and bring them along. So, Neil, it looks like we have opened up a very important part of something that I know is very important to you, and you have touched upon it in a lot of your work, which is this notion of, you could say, which you, I think, very wisely put and cleverly, the civil rights of theology, of opening up the space for us to question. There is nothing a priori. Everything is on the table, including God. And I was born Jewish, and one of the things that, while I'm not a practicing uh, Jewish person, I have immense respect for the teachings, and I think of them as that, and as a psychology, basically. And uh, one of the things that distinguishes this particular teaching from other monotheistic ones is that it invites questioning, and it invites actually arguing and disagreeing with some of the tenets of God. And, you know, this is kind of archetypally represented in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, the wonderful old Broadway show and then later film, where, um, where the protagonist is saying, God, if you're really there, how could you let this befall us? How could it happen? And he's very disillusioned with God, and in engaged in active dialogue, which of course is what you did as the premise of Conversations with God, but it's a different theological perspective and purview than the others that we have seen. So I'd like to hear what except, you have except to, say to the about extent, that. Except to the extent that uh, I do not believe that the Jewish theology allows for the possibility that God and we are exactly and precisely the same thing. If it does, I haven't seen it in any of the classic Jewish uh, literature and scriptures. That we are all the same thing as... That we are in fact, that we are in fact God. Oh, that we are in fact God, yes. Well, you would have to go probably a little deeper, Neil, into Kabbalah and some of the teachings, interestingly, of um, the Baal Shem Tov, who... Uh, you know, was orthodox, but he was a man of celebration and of love and joy. And even though his teachings gave rise to what is known as the Hasidim, uh, which became really very conservative over time, at the time that it was begun, it understood that we are God, and there was not a separation. So you could say that there are sects or... <laughs> Yes, Cult, and that's true will. in Christianity as well. Yes, that's, exactly. that's true. There is there is a, there is a, a sect of Christianity called the Unity Church of Christ. Yes, indeed. And the Unity Church is well. analogous to what you've just said. Yes. it is a religious uh, expression that declares quite uh, uh, straightforward. Uh, yes, uh, that that uh, that God and we are one. That everything is unified. Yes, but exactly. We're talking about exactly. Main Street as uh, as opposed to a smaller, uh, relatively unknown and not generally recognized uh, sect. 
where, where, or, or I shouldn't say not generally recognized, but in, in, in very small numbers is yes. it participated in relative, relative to the total worldwide exactly. congregation of Christians. After all, look at what happened about. with um, Bruno, for crying out loud. Look at the, the actual history of the Roman Catholic Church. People were literally burned at the stake for disagreeing with the church, which was virtually synonymous that's, that's my, with the that's state. That's my point. That's my point precisely. I know. That's so why. even yeah. in the Jewish tradition, yeah. the largest number of Jews on the planet would not subscribe to, nor are they taught by standard, ordinary, traditional Jewish literature, whether True. it's the Old Testament yeah. or any other standard. Yes, there are sects within Kabbalah that might say, you know what, we're all. But but if you talk to you know 100 Jews in the yeah. world, 85 percent of them will say, you know, I never heard of that, or if I did hear about, it, I don't agree with it exactly. because they see. Otherwise, Tevya would not be saying in you know Fiddler on the Roof, God, why would you do this? That's right. How could you stand by and watch this? He would have said, How can I be doing this to myself? Exactly. It's set up as an I and thou relationship, which you get. Of course, as you're saying, in Judaism, you get it in Christianity, you obviously have it in Islam, and, well, just keep traveling the world and you'll continue to see it. And you are bringing forward um, a much uh, more intimate idea, which I very much appreciate, which is also, on many levels, iconoclastic, which completely dishevels this old and encrusted theology. So please say more. Oh, I'll say this. If I were a rich man. <laughs> and I, okay, I'm going to reveal my feeling about God, which is that he really is a Jewish comedian doing the borscht belt. And I have proof of this. <laughs> proof. What happened to the goddess, Neil? What happened to, when we really look at the history of human civilization, not to mention the, uh, what we believe was an original matriarchate distinct from patriarch, uh, patriarchate, what happened to our appreciation of the depth of the feminine and what is its role in our emerging world now? Well, there, there was a, 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 a revolt. First of all, um, you're, you're uh, perfectly right. The very first uh, forms of worship, which we today call religion, yes. centered largely on the matriarchy, that is, on women. Yes. And it was quite natural for it to do so in the most primitive times of humanity's experience because uh, um the entire population, both men and women, recognized and observed easily that new life was brought to the planet by the feminine gender. Yeah. So the females of the species were, bringing, were, were the creators, literally the creators of life. And uh, in the earliest days, the, we didn't even know how that was happening. There was no direct connection made between the sexual intercourse and the creation of babies by people in, in, in by the cavemen and so forth. So that that connection was not made till very very late in our actually in our psychological development. Yeah. So we we thought it was a miracle. We, you know, how you know what, there was no biological explanation. How in the world are women doing this, dropping <laughs> babies in, in the in the cave every nine months? You know, and, and so they must be yeah. goddesses. They, they must be divine. They must be something you know, larger than or That's other really than us. That's a really good us. point. Yes. That's a very good and, point. And so the matriarchy quite naturally developed into the, uh, the, the, the goddess class. 
and it 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 it, it remained that way for for thousands of years, not not for a couple of weeks, mm, but for right. a very very long time. Yeah. During the period of the matriarchy, what occurred is that uh, it became apparent to women that they needed men for less and less and less, even after the connection was made between uh, sexual activity and the creation of new life. Even then, men got to be not a whole lot higher on the scale of things than worker bees. With the with the uh, you know the the, the honeybee with the with, yeah. the with the queen bee sure. off in the corner, so so after a while men got to realize that they were being used largely for procreative purposes and then actually tossed aside almost almost thrown away and if they when they, and if they got too old to do that and they weren't capable of doing that anymore they were really out they had, there was no purpose because they couldn't do that they couldn't do the heavy lifting they couldn't move the boulders and the rocks and build things and so they were literally not figuratively but literally thrown out in the cold. Yeah. Like a and, and allowed to die uh, from the elements, and so after a while, men got to think, you know what, uh, this doesn't feel good. And there was ultimately, this took a while, but ultimately a, a revolt where mm-hmm. men said, no, no, that's not how it's going to be anymore. And men realized they had one thing, if only one thing. I want to put it over women, or that women did not have in the main, not not uh, not uh, exclusively, but in the main, which was of course brute force. Yeah. That I'm glad you didn't term. say penises, <laughs> but no, and bring that is, Freud, that, that but is in simple terms. Yeah. In simple terms, they were simply stronger, yeah. physically stronger, yeah. and they took advantage of that. And they finally said, "You know what? It's going to be our way." And the whole thing gradually, over a period of several hundred years, shifted from a matriarchy to a patriarchy. And it's the patriarchy that created most of the world's ultimately created most of the world's what we now call religions or theologies, yeah. in which it is noticed that the God of course, is a man uh, or a male, male figure. And, and and males decided that, that it was power, not the, the ability to bring life to the planet, but in fact sheer power and force that yeah. was the chief characteristic of divinity. So our idea of what, what characteristic exemplifies divinity shifted from life-giving to power and force. At that time, men decided that they were it, and they've kept up that idea till this very day. Yes. Now, we are seeing in the past maybe 50 years, uh, loosely in the past 100, but, but not really in yeah. any specific terms, till the past even 20 or 25 years, where finally in the past quarter century or so, humanity is coming to some conclusions about itself with regard to itself, saying to itself, you know what, it's neither men nor women who are in a position of superiority for one reason or another. And that would probably be equally true about what we choose to call divinity or that which is divine. And so you'll see in the next 25 or 30 years, uh, it'll happen more rapidly now because of our communication and so forth, what mm-hmm. I call instaparency and instacommunication. Mm-hmm. You'll see in the next 25 or 30 years a movement away from male-centered theologies mm. where we will gradually stop talking about God the Father and gradually stop imagining that men are the head of the household yeah. and, and all the other things that, that religion still teaches, by the way. Yeah. I had a, a case of a, not, not long ago, six or eight years ago, relatively recently, of a lady who came to me and said that she had been abused, physically abused, beaten up and knocked around by her husband. Mm. And uh, she said that she had gone to her church. She's a Catholic. She went to her parish priest to ask for a spiritual and, and uh, counsel. And he advised her to stick, you know, stand by your man, mm. and to he, he didn't say that she had to put up with, you know, being that she he didn't go that far. But he did not say to her, you know, go see an attorney and get out of there tomorrow. Yeah. He sent her home, 
allowing her to, to abide. Feel her duty yes. as a wife was to stand by her guy. You know, and, mm. and so she suffered with him for a few more years until you know she met me in a counseling session, yeah. in a spiritual spiritual coaching session. And I told yeah. her, I give you 30 days. Yeah. Just get out. Yes. And it changed her whole life. God, yes. So what's happened theologically now is that we're now coming back to a center point where we realize it's not about women, and it's not about men, that God is not gender-specific, that divinity is not gender-related, and that, in fact, humanity and all of life in all of its varied and endless manifest forms is what divinity really is, mm-hmm. and that so-called masculinity and femininity are simply two of a million characteristics of God. Indeed. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. And, I mean, it seems so much that nature, Neil, is a balancing act, as we see in all aspects, like weather, climate, everything, everything in our lives. And uh, it's, it's a matter of physics, really. And so with this excess uh, patriarchal thinking dominating our cultures, for the past long period of time. It seems that this notion of the divine feminine is very much gaining ground and a new uh, level of awareness has entered our culture and appreciation for whatever that dimension might be. And part of it, I think, is showing up in men becoming more sensitive and allowing themselves to be in touch with their hearts. And you talk about a unity consciousness and how in the book you talk specifically about this is exactly the thing that all theologies and religions, even though they make passing reference to, avoid like the plague because it would change, as you well put it, everything. Um, I think that this notion of men becoming more sensitive and women playing more roles, actually, so-called in the marketplace, is part of showing us a unified field that we are truly one. It, you know, even biology says this, because if you look at just the, um, the uh, um, what's the, what is the word, um, the testicles, when they descend, are coming from what would be female genitalia. So it biologically suggests that we all initially, actually, were female. And from the female emerges the male. So, I mean, even there we have, you could say, a biological metaphor uh, or analog to what you are referring to, you could say theologically or metaphysically, as one being. Could you comment on that? Yes, you're right. It's interesting, huh? That would be my comment. Yes. You're probably you're probably right about that. Yeah. But yeah. the, the, the the real issue, the real question is, where to from here? We are undergoing the yeah. overall of humanity. Uh, it, that's happening on the earth right now. And uh, these fascinating explorations are part of the side. The question is, what does that bode for our future? What yeah. what kind of a human species 
are we seeking to express and to experience, to announce and to declare, to become and to create on this earth, and why? Why are we bothering to do that? Yeah. Whether Hillary Clinton is one of the greatest Secretary of State we've ever had, and for that matter, becomes the first female president of the United States, or whether she does not, mm-hmm. is not really relevant, except to the degree that it is a reflection of larger decisions and grander choices that are being made now by all of us with regard to the answer to the question, who are we, who am I, why am I here, what is my purpose, what is my function, and how can I place that into physical life? How can I physicalize what I understand metaphysically to be true? That that becomes the question Truly. before humanity these days. And Truly. I do suggest to people that they begin to use that yardstick that I mentioned a while ago, laying that ruler down against everything that they're doing from minute to minute in their life, yeah. whether they're listening to this interview right now, going out to have dinner tonight, uh, or whatever it might be that they're doing, taking a shower, putting on this clothes, uh, this coat rather than that coat, this dress rather than that dress, combing their hair this way and not combing their hair that way, what, whatever the activity might be, important or unimportant, to ask themselves the question, what does this have to do with the agenda of my soul? And if they ask themselves that question in front of virtually every choice, thought, and decision, they will quickly discover that two things are true. One, 98% of the time they're spending on the 98% of things that don't matter. And two, if they choose to do what they're doing as a demonstration of what does matter, their life will change in 30 days. They won't even know who they are in a month from now. Yes. Their friends will say, wow, what's happened to you? Yes, exactly. You are, in your language, uh, bringing forward one of the most pivotal teachings from, I go back to the East because a lot of my training is from there, to the Advaita teachings and that of self-inquiry that was made so well-known by Ramana Maharshi, one of the leading spiritual teachers of India, who had the famous question that we all should have and do ask many of us ourselves, who am I? And you're suggesting, you're framing it as, what would my soul have me do now? Or what would my soul, what is the role of my soul in my moment-to-moment existence here? And I think that that's bringing a wonderful level of intelligence to one's moment-to-moment life. Because otherwise it is mechanical and it is rather just a biological phenomenon without bringing the grace of above, of a higher way of being and intelligence to the What subject. I like to say to my audiences is yeah. even if you do not believe in God, even if you think all this metaphysical stuff is nonsense, even if you write it all off and you really do think that you are nothing more than a biological entity, yeah. even given that, if you were to live your life by this measuring stick, okay, what does this have to do with my larger sense of self? Frame it in whatever words you want. You still would live a life that would become entirely different, far more meaningful, yeah. incredibly more rewarding than the kind of life we're leading now. So you're right. I am suggesting to people that we create a a new yardstick, a new measuring device against which we can judge and observe everything we're doing 
what am I having for dinner tonight? Why did I just order that? Is this the third drink I've had this evening or the fourth or the fifth? Do I really want to have this cigarette right now? What, what, you know, is, is it time to have sex with my beloved other or not? Why am, right. I, why am I doing what I'm doing? I had a wonderful intimate experience with my beloved wife last night. We had a sexual encounter last evening. It was wonderful. But I'm <laughs> thinking as, as, I, as, I'm, as I'm engaging in that experience, why am I doing this? Yes. Is this just to feel good? Yeah. Is this just to create a physical outcome? Uh-huh. Is this you know what is the purpose of what's going on right now? Yes. And and when the purpose of it is to express, to experience, to announce and to declare, to become and to fulfill the grandest version of divinity of which I imagine myself to be capable in this moment, it alters and changes the quality of the entire experience. Whether it's making love, having dinner, taking a shower, driving down the road, buying something at the grocery store, or whatever you're doing. Suddenly, your doing this becomes imbued with a sense of self that was not there before. And in fact, people around you will say, what's come over you? You seem different. You seem happier. You seem more peaceful. You seem more self-referencing and self-rewarding. What have you discovered? And your answer will be, I've discovered the only thing that matters. Mm, yes, I like that. I like that. At the uh, underneath, I have a couple more questions I'd really like to get to, or matters I'd like to put on the table here, talking about things that matter. Uh, one is underneath so much of what I hear you saying, Neil, is this quest for meaning and and um, embracing qualities and values that are really deep in our heart and soul and not being uh, distracted by the things of the world that are populating our minds and our media and everything else, but really something way different, a different vibration, if you will, that really is the subjective Um, fulfillment of meaning as we see it. Because at the end of the day, even though each soul's desire may be the same, our interpretation and experience of it is unique to ourselves as though we are our own respective snowflake. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that aspect of what you're putting forward. I think that everything that you say is stupid stuff and nonsense. I can't imagine that people actually listen to you on the radio. <laughs> you spew all this crap, and you just come out with all these philosophical things, and you, you call this questioning your guest. It's just a platform for you to just say these nonsensical, really crazy things. Yes, I know. I couldn't help it, Mitchell. I often, I often thought, what happens if he gets a guest just once in his life who says, what in the hell are you going on about? So I thought I would just do it for you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You fulfilled that role. You are an actor, after all. Bless you. <laughs> but let, let, but let, let me tell you now that my, yeah. my answer. Yeah, my answer to your question is: I, I, I think, of course, you're funny. Of course, I think you've got you, you've got it yeah. figured out. Thank God, since you happen to be a counselor, I'm glad you know what you're doing. Yes, thank you. you thank you. You, you in yeah. fact, have it figured out according to my lights, perfectly. You know, 
we 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 are on this, as you said, to use your words, this quest for meaning, the meaning in 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 life. Yes. But you know, the 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 meaning in life is not discovered by questing for it, by searching for it, by trying to find it, mm-hmm. as if it existed apart and aside from us. Right. And if we just look under the right uh, rock or behind the right tree, we're going to find out what the true meaning is. No, no, no. As you correctly pointed out. Nothing has any meaning unless we give it that meaning. Yeah. So meaning is is contrived and created, produced and announced in the human mind. A thing is what we say it is, and it's not what we do not say it is. So our opportunity is to stop questing for meaning, stop trying to find the meaning of life or any particular action in life, any particular moment in life, and to imbue it with the meaning that we choose mm knowing that by that choice we announce and declare who we are, that every thought, every act is an act of self-definition. So I stopped looking for the meaning in life around 15 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I started seeing that every opportunity, every moment of my life was an invitation from life itself to give it the meaning I chose out of which the self I am would arise. Mm. Yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I got it, Neil. I got it. I think that's fabulous. I'm going to dare say that inside that experience that you have uh, is some sense of humility, which is another way, by the way, of saying connectedness to earth, if you look at it etymologically, and gratitude. And I, I don't know. I'm just saying that. And maybe I'm off my rocker here, like you suggested. <laughs> but my sense is that very betwixt and between that experience of yourself arising are some of those vivifying qualities. Is that a fair thing to say? I am so humble, uh, and the humility pours forth from me such that I have to announce I am the most humble person I've ever met. <laughs> You really want to play, don't you? <laughs> it's, so it's such a delight talking with you. you. You remind me of one of my oldest friends in the world, and we have the same type of banter that is so much fun, and I haven't seen him in a long time. So thank you for being one of my close friends that I grew up with. And that really dovetails into this notion that you make a big deal of in the book, which is that we are all one, and we can't really trot that out into society because all systems would would fail. So let's I, I think, think about that, that what happens. Yeah, I think that what happens uh, to be serious for a moment is that when we get in touch with who we really are, yeah. and with the uh, enormity of that, of course we are overtaken by a sense of very healthy humility even as one would looking up at a clear night sky. I mean, there's not a single one of us on the earth who has not walked uh, down a country pathway uh, at some point in their life, uh, looked up at the clear uh, night sky and said, oh my God, I mean, look at this. Look at this. There Truly. are billions, as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of stars. Yeah. And and here I am, you know, this grain of sand on this particular beach, and there are a trillion beaches just like this. Oh. Who, who, you know, what, what am right. I involved in? My God, my yeah. God, what am I involved in? And what is my true place in all of this? But when we can turn that humility into a sense of self, 
that can be both glorious and humble simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And then we say thank you to God, that word that we use to just simply ca- encapsulate all of everything, including ourselves. Yes. And we say thank you to life that I have this opportunity to express myself in the grandest way through this particular form that I now take uh, in this physical universe. Thank you, God, for this wonderful opportunity to be that and to do that and to experience that and to express that. And that's a life, it seems to me, well lived. Indeed. Indeed. I, I agree with you so much. And when we bring forward this level of consciousness that you're speaking of here, Neil, into our daily lives, it's one thing, which is rather circumscribed by the actions that we do, but when we look at the larger collective life of our society, how does it, I mean, I think that you're incredibly eloquent in the way you speak about this in the later series of Conversations with God, the way this level of intelligence shows up. But I'm wondering if there, is there any distinction between um, what we could call conscious politics or conscious economics or conscious social life um, between what you were enunciating then and what you're putting forward now? Well, yes. Uh, I wrote a book called um, The Storm Before the Calm, uh-huh. which is my most recent previous book. Uh-huh. And in that book, I really offer uh, answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between then and now? Uh, what is the consciousness shift that is being invited? What is the shift that is already beginning to occur? What are the contrasts between those two levels of experience, expression, and consciousness? And how does it all come together? How can it all come together uh, in the relatively near future to produce the outcomes for which humanity has been yearning from the beginning of time? First thing we have to do, I don't know how much time we have here, but the we first thing we have to do... We can take a few minutes. That we're going over, but it's so much my pleasure, and I want you to be able to finish your thought. So please. Well, the first thing we have to do is Wind to acknowledge that, that what we're doing now is not working. Yes. Uh, I, I want to make it something real clear, Mitchell, and uh, your, your, your readers, uh, I'm sorry, your listeners need to really pay attention to this. Yeah. Every single system we have put into place on this planet is not working. That is, our political system is not working. Our economic system is not working. Right. Our ecological system is not working. Our educational system is not working. Our social system is not working, and even our spiritual system is not working. These systems we have designed over a period of many years, they've evolved into what they are. We've put them into place in order to create a better life for all, and they are not doing that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, it's worse. It's worse. Yes. Not only are they not doing that, they're actually doing exactly the opposite. Our political system is producing the opposite of a better life. Our economic system is producing the opposite of a better life. And right on down the line. That's right. What then is going on? Is it possible that there's something we simply don't understand here? The understanding of which would change everything? Mm -hmm. Now, until humanity can get off of its ego at its high horse and say, you know what? There's probably something we simply don't understand fully. And then we could do this right after all these thousands of years. The book, The Storm Before the Calm, asks and answers those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I'm so glad. 
I feel you are. Uh, one of the things, if I may say, is that uh, when I met you originally at the Natural Law Party fundraiser for John Hagelin and Mike Tompkins running for president, and I so wish they had won, I, I sometimes contemplate what our world would look like had they won, and the wars that would not have taken place, the war against nature, the genetic uh, GMOs, uh, the things that are taking place that are so out of hand, as you were suggesting before. When we met, I felt here is a man of God, if you don't mind my saying, who has a real grounded sense of the importance of the intelligence of the spiritual life in the world, in the body politic, in the body economic. It needs to be rooted here. And I, I so appreciate it. when I first met you and interviewed you, I, I was just um, so moved by what I felt was your intelligent integration. Don't blush now, <laughs> but uh, truly, uh, truly intelligent integration of these elements that are just as God is positioned so often externally to we human beings, so it is also made external to all of our human you know, uh, man-based systems, but that's exactly where it needs to show up, where intelligence is needed most. So uh, I'm, I'm making I'm making the argument in the only thing that that I'm I'm sorry, forgive me. In no, no, I, I'm finished. Calm. Please, I'm making the argument in the storm before the calm, my last most recent book prior to this one, yeah. that. Uh, what what humanity needs now to do is move back into a trifolding um, model of uh, creation in our societies. Trifolding means simply this: uh, originally, uh, societies were created on a trifold model consisting of politics, economics, and culture. Mm -hmm. And inside of culture would be placed spirituality, art, music, and all of the uh, other aspects of life that cause us to have color and dynamic and nuance and characteristics that are unique to us and to groups and so forth. Yeah. So we talk about politics, economics, and culture. What's happened in the past several hundred years is that culture and spirituality as part of culture has been sublimated and now all, almost all but eliminated from the model of, that runs uh, societies mm. on the planet. Yeah. We now have a, a model of society that is not exclusively but largely run by politics and economics, and not even in that order, but actually economics first and, and politics. then politics. And, and the culture is not only sublimated, we now have politicians saying we should stop funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, yeah. stop funding for public education and public bro I mean public broadcasting I meant to say right. and public, public education <laughs> and, yeah exactly yeah. for that matter yeah. and 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 so we have politicians and economics saying it cost us too much money to put art in schools so we we, we do need to spend money however at at the cost of $245 a piece for football helmets yes because our football teams down there in Texas got to have those teams on the field yeah. but let's get poetry and let's get art out of the classroom, because see, and, and, and they, we, they, we get into arguments about values in the schools. So let's get values out of the schools, for God's sake. Don't teach our kids a sense of values, since we can't all agree on what our primary values are anyway. That's how messed up our society has become. And what I argue for in the storm before the calm is let us return to a threefold model 
using a process called free-folding, mm-hmm. where we decide that our primary decisions, our larger choices in life at the governmental global level as well as individually will involve three-fold reasoning. Does it involve politics? Does it involve economics? Does it involve our culture? And when we can raise culture to the status of an equal partner with economics and, 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 and politics mm-hmm. in the making of humanity's largest decisions, we will return to where we were thousands of years ago in ancient Greece. Thank you very much. Yes, exactly. Bravo. Right, exactly. Everything is truly a circle or a platonic salad. <laughs> yeah. No, so well put, so well put. Isn't that, you know, talk about taking one step forward and three steps back. It's just, uh, it's horrific that what has happened, the the misordering, if you will, of of principles and values is just our plague these days. And uh, you were reordering it and showing that indeed there was democracy, you were implying, back in Greece where we first got the word uh, and if we could resume or, or progress to something as brilliant as that, we would have come a far way from where we are now. Well, Neil, I want to just thank you so much for being a guest on today's show and sharing your thoughtfulness, your humor, and your wisdom with us. It was just beautiful. Thank you, Mitchell. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad. Absolutely. And uh, Travel well, my friend. Thank you so much, and we'll gladly have you back on again. I think we have just begun to scratch the surface here. Great. Okay. God bless. You too, my friend. Okay. Thanks, my friend. Bye-bye. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv, and Neil's books are available at that website, and you can get them there. Aha. Uh-huh. We have prepared, but we are finished and now going into Mozart. So thank you so much for joining us. And please join us again next week and let your friends know about us. We love also your feedback, so make sure to write to MJR at AMetalWorld.net. Thanks again.